My name is Robert Schreiner, and I've just written a novel called The Wolves and the Greyhounds, and you're listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Welcome to The Jay Franzi Show, a behind-the-curtain look at the entertainment industry with insights you can't pay for and stories you've never heard. Now, here's your host, Jay Franzi. Well, hello and welcome to the show. I am Jay Franzi, and if you are new here, this is where we take a deep dive into the entertainment industry to provide you with valuable insights and entertaining stories. This week, we get to talk with one of Nashville's finest, a producer, an engineer, and a musician. We get to talk with Jim Cristaldi. We'll talk to him about his songwriting process, his production process, and we'll take a deep dive into the project he did with his wife, Rachel. Now, Jim was the first person I met when I moved to Nashville. It was while working on a project for an independent artist. We quickly became friends and have worked together on hundreds of projects since then, and I look forward to catching up with him here tonight. So if you'd like to join in, comment, or fire off any questions, please head over to jfranzi.com. Now let's get started. Jim, sir, how are you? I'm doing great, man. How are you doing? I am fabulous. I am happy to have you here, sir. Let's do this thing, man. All right. Well, I always laugh. I mean, you grew up in New York, where my family's from, and I grew up in Boston. Yeah. And I went to Berkeley and moved to New York, and then you moved from New York to Boston to go to Berkeley. Yeah. And we didn't meet until Nashville. Yeah. And I always found that interesting that our paths have crossed so many times, but we didn't actually meet until it's it's like meeting in the big game. You know, if you think of Nashville as the big game. And yeah. why don't you just go ahead and, and start by telling us what got you inspired to work in the music business in the first place? Probably uh, when I was uh, 15 years old, there was a band that was starting in my high school. And it was like, you know, I wasn't really in with the in crowd at that point. I played a little sports, but um, I really wanted to join the damn band. So, And so there was a garage sale in our little hometown in Greenwich, New York. So I called my dad up and I was like, dad, there's a bass for sale. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, this garage, it literally was a Sears bass and they wanted 50 bucks for it, you know? And so <laughs> he came down and, and uh, we looked at the bass. I played a little bit. I didn't even know how to play at that point. And he looked at me and he said, son, he goes, do you think this is something you're going to want to stick with? And I said, yeah, I, I really do. I think it's something I want to stick with. So he bought me the bass and um, we ended up putting our band together and we played, uh, gosh, I mean, we played all the high school dances. Uh, we played private parties. I mean, I was making money by the time I was 15, 16 years old, which actually led to me getting a gig in a uh, the kind of the regional country band, this guy named Marty Wendell up north, who was, um, who played a lot of, I mean, to this day, probably the biggest gig I played was, uh, with, with that country band. I think it was about 40,000 people. Um, it's the Albany fireworks of the 4th of July, you know? So, um, that kind of started the whole thing. And he gave me a, my first professional sort of gig, you know, where you had to sound good. You couldn't, screw around you know he used to get pissed because <laughs> i had a couple of my friends in the band too and and um, so he kind of got on us a little bit and but it was good you know so 
that's what pretty much started it. But when I met you, you had already had a, what was it, a blue CD that was out? Well, I thought it was a rock CD. When I put it out, it was like hitting all the radio stations around my regional area. I actually ended up getting into Strawberries at the time, which I think now defunct, but was a kind of a big deal, you know, for a local guy to get all of his product and Strawberries. And pretty much every regional store was kind of having the CD. I used to go to malls and do shows to promote it. It, it was interesting because when I started sending it to radio, I would get the same thing. Well, this kind of fits into the cracks. It's kind of, it's rock, but it's a little bit country too, you know? So it's like, and, and I was really having a hard time with radio getting them to get behind it because of that. And I heard that a lot, you know, oh, it's kind of rock, it's kind of country, you know, it falls in the cracks, falls in the cracks. That was kind of my first foray into really understanding how important it is to, uh, I mean, if you want to be a commercial artist, you have to pretty much pick your poison and just go for it. You know what I'm saying? In that particular genre. But I was clueless. I was just writing songs and playing live and enjoying it. And um, that that's uh, pretty much the deal with that. So at what point was it that you decided to move to Nashville? Well, it, it was shortly after that. And I just started recording with a computer, which... This is 30 years ago, 30, you know, 30 years ago or so. So n nobody was really doing that. I mean, there was, I, I learned when I came to Nashville, people using radar. I mean, Pro Tools was around, but it wasn't really widely used. People were still using a lot of two-inch tape, either that or ADAT, which, you know, I never thought sounded very good, and it never lasted. I mean, like, you couldn't, it's hard to preserve. <laughs> I was never a fan of the ADAT. No. I don't blame you. When I came to Nashville, Radar was big. Yeah, Radar wasn't bad. It was the first real commercially successful hard drive system. Yeah, exactly. But I was already doing like PC recording in, you know, my hometown in Greenwich, you know, kind of on the side, just recording my original songs and just getting used to the, how it all worked. And it was pretty amazing at the time. I mean, you didn't have any other choice, especially if you were uh, not a top tier producer that had access to everything, you know, um, it was amazing to be able to record eight. I think the most I could get was eight or 10 tracks, you know, and if you wanted more than that, you'd have to bounce. But, but I mean, the bounce was perfect. It wasn't like, you know, in the four track days when they right. were recording with tape, you get all this hiss and everything sounds like crap by the time you bounce it twice. So, you know, everything was slow and it took forever to bounce tracks and everything. That kind of got me started into the recording end of it. And then I did a couple really big shows in Albany, the Live at Five, which was one of the biggest showcases for local bands in, in Albany. The uh, I mean, there's probably 10,000 people that showed up. The, the guy in the band after me came up after me. He said, whoa, seemed like they really like you guys. You know, <laughs> like, And the guy that booked it, he had seen my band play and some of the clubs around, you know, and he was cool. And he, he was the main guy that booked this place. Afterwards, I called him up. I said, you know, what's going on? He's like, yeah, he goes, crowd really seemed to like you. You know, and I said, okay, yeah, I, I thought so too, you know. And he said, 
you know, I said, I thought everything was good because I don't want to do more business with him. You know, you got other things you book, you know, other big events and, you know, the Albany area. And he said, no, nah, he goes, I prefer a group of musicians who are a band, not just like a, a lead singer and a blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, okay. You know, I was a little bit surprised. Like, it was like, seriously? And I said, well, you mentioned paying us a couple hundred bucks for it. And he was like, nah, he was like, you guys got a lot of publicity out of it. I'm not going to worry about it, you know? And I was polite about it, but I wanted to kick his ass, you know? <laughs> I was like, screw you. And um, I had a really hard time breaking into that little click. And so I just kind of was like, let me go someplace where I think there's more talented people and that might appreciate my talent. So Nashville it was. And that was probably within a year or a year and a half from that gig, say. I know you're a producer, an engineer, a songwriter, a musician, you're a recording artist. You've done just about anything in the industry. And not only have you done them, but you do them well. But when you moved to Nashville, what was the intent? Was it to be an artist or to be a producer? Uh, to songwriter and eventually producer. I mean, I was freaking 30 by the time I moved here. So I was like, labels want younger people. And, you know, so I didn't have any... I mean, I did release an album here as a solo artist. I released an album as um, with my wife as a duo. But that wasn't the original intention really coming here. That was just something I did kind of for fun, I guess, or or just see what happens, you know, in order to get my producing chops to a better place. Uh, when I came here, it was songwriter first because I think that was generally the the chronological order of things is like, you know, you, you get songwriter, you get uh, some cuts, maybe a hit, a couple hits, and then you can start producing artists because you have the secret sauce, you know? When you're doing it, what's your process like? What are you thinking about first when writing a song? Um, I would say that when I was younger, I would kind of hear like a, a hook or a, a chorus maybe and the melody kind of at the same time um, in my head. And then I would try to reproduce it, but I had harder time coming up with maybe the rest of the, the whole song, like the verses and how the verses can lead into the chorus and pre chorus can set up the chorus and how you got to pay off a hook, you know, the length and just all, you know, second verse has got to be a continuation of the first verse bridge has got to be a departure. I mean, I didn't understand all that stuff. So it was more just shooting in the dark and hearing kind of catchy melodies. And I've listened back to the first album I technically ever recorded and, and it's catchy. There, there's four or five songs that are really catchy. And, um, but by Nashville standards, lyrically not up to that, level so by writing with hit writers in nashville being mentored by a guy that had 30 hits and five number ones i kind of learned how to craft lyrically better and then i, I've, I feel like i've always had the melody kind of thing together just because i'm a musician and all that do you feel your time at berkeley helped with all that yeah i have uh mixed emotions about berkeley you know, at first I was like ecstatic. I got a scholarship to go to Berkeley, you know, it's like, and that was great and it was cool. And it kind of gave me some bragging rights when I was early on and insecure. <laughs> but when I look back at it, 
I would have to say that I, I probably wouldn't have done it. I probably would have skipped music school. And um, now I was studying jazz at Berkeley. So, you know, in my mind, that was sort of, you see, either, either you study classical or jazz back then. They didn't necessarily have, and you, you could do some rock and stuff, but it, uh, it, there was no country. There was no, it's like you had to have a kind of a discipline, you know, so it was either classical or jazz. To me, jazz always felt, you know, you could apply it to, to blues, to rock and roll, to hell, country, uh, I mean, anything, you know. And, and it was also ha has an improvisational nature which I really liked. I would say that I went to a teacher after Berkeley. His name was Charlie Benakis. He had a, a year waiting list to be a student. Was this in Nashville? No, that was in um, Boston, which is pretty much got me to Nashville. I picked up some bad habits. When I went to Benakis, he was a jazz teacher, so taught some of the jazz greats. But his the way that he put things together as far as theory and music and understanding ear training was just, it was simple, but it was so much more effective. I think sometimes when you go to a college, they, they got to fill up time so you can go there and get credit. So they make up kind of some weird shit, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> you know, like he just got to the heart of matter. So at that point I played with some, some of the best jazz players and uh, I was hiring them for I because I was always writing and so I had a jazz fusion band and of course I was playing rock and roll standards at that time like classic rock you know that was uh, something I did probably four or five times a week and uh, you know that brought me back to New York for a couple of years for a little respite and then doing the songwriting thing more with my first album and then and then it was kind of obvious I needed to go somewhere that was, you know, for one just shot to do anything to come to a bigger place. And this was like New York, LA or Nashville and my music, everyone seemed to be saying, well, it sounds a little country. You know what I mean? So it seemed obvious. And I don't know if I'd enjoy living in New York uh, city, honestly. No, no, it wasn't for me either. I wasn't a big fan when I lived there. I didn't want to stay there. Yeah, yeah. But you mentioned the school, and I know I taught at the engineering school for several years, and yeah. it was the same way. I mean, I was the director of education. I was in charge of putting the curriculum together, yeah. which I enjoyed, and I enjoyed working with the students, and I thought it was really fun. But when we got to a point where we had to start throwing in fluff in order to meet regulations and guidelines yeah. from either the school or the board that would tell us, if you want to be able to teach a degree, you have to now offer these courses. And so it was kind of kind of rough having to go through the red tape. Yeah. Back to Nashville now. So you're in Nashville. When you're writing the songs, now you're also producing songs. So how do you balance the, the two? I would say in stages. So first is obviously got to be the song. And, and so you have to craft your perfect song, so to speak, melody, lyrics, you know, storyline. I've written with a lot of hit writers and like you literally do not even write a song unless someone's brought in an idea, a title and a concept. So in other words, you know, you know, I love you. I mean, this is totally generic. So you'd never do this at a right, real writing session, but you know, I love you, you know, is the name of the song and it's about, uh, 
two people that get together and through life they the first verse you would you know, I sort of outline it you know the first verse they they meet in high school and the second verse they they get married after college and then the third verse they're growing old together or something like that a bridge lay the whole thing out a lot of writers what they'll do is think through the whole song and make sure that the whole thing can be written because there's certain titles and, and things and ideas you come up with that just you can't write it like you get to the point and you're like what am i going to do in the second verse you know like i've already said everything that needs to be said in the first verse and chorus you know so it's over johnny yeah it's, it's pretty much done you know so i mean like you kind of think through it before and make sure that it can be written as a full verse chorus verse chorus possibly bridge chorus you know out and then you go from there i would start with the actual song and then say i'm writing with a you know a writer that's a good writer and we would come up with the song it might take a session maybe two sessions you know and then i would do a rough guitar vocal of it which could be just me chucking up a microphone in the studio and just singing and playing at the same time so just so you doesn't have to be perfect just so you know how everything goes and then we sit on it for a little bit, and if we think it's something that can be pitched, then you produce it. No, I like that, too. I mean, you talk about the guitar vocal. I mean, again, you, you play many instruments, and guitar, I, I would assume, you know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I know of you, guitar is your main instrument. Yeah. And do you prefer electric or acoustic? You know, um, I mean, I... I recently put out a, a blues demo, I'll call it, I'm going to call it an album. I don't think it was enough effort was put in it to be an album, but, but a blues demo. So there's a lot of lead guitar. So I would probably electric guitar. I mean, especially on stage, acoustic guitar to me is um, kind of gives the production that shimmer. I honestly couldn't, I mean, other than if I was doing a, like I used to do and when I was playing out, if I was doing a, just a guitar and a vocalist and you bring your PA and you just sing like that and play acoustic. But as far as actually enjoying something, I would probably, electric has more possibilities. Well, I mean, again, from just the time that we've spent together, I'm, I assume you use the acoustic more in the writing process yeah. and the, the electric more when you're on stage. Or in the studio, if I'm doing the production, yeah. Yeah, and just like you were saying, too, when you're laying down the, the guitar vocal or the demo, as we call it, you're putting that together, and it's just to capture an idea. Yeah. And then what ends up happening is that's when we get together and go in the studio and, and hire musicians and record the finished product. That's when we truly produce a, an album. Yeah. Putting that together, to me, that's my favorite part of the whole thing is getting together and doing that. Oh, okay, cool. Even when we wrote songs together, you write them and you get the guitar vocal. I think that's great. It gives you an idea. It's a thrill for that moment, but it's not a complete thrill until it's fully produced. For it's me. not like going into down a music row to one of those big ass studios and hiring right. triple scale guys. And right. <laughs> you know, yeah, you know you're like the you're the big boy. Well, yeah, you're a great engineer. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I couldn't run those big studios. You know, so it's like it's like I, I was like the music band leader and the guitar player and we'd hire the best guys in town and you do your magic in the freaking i call them spacecrafts you know right. <laughs> 
I look at it as like a cockpit of an airplane. You just got oh so many God. knobs and stuff in front of it. Oh, I mean those. Yeah, I mean the, the top notch studios are just so impressive. I always think it's cool, though. I mean, we've had several people on on the show recently, and Jeff King, who's one of the best guitar players I've ever worked with. We've had Scotty Simpson, one of the best bass players I've ever worked with. I mean, these people are truly amazing. Bob Bullock, who's one of the best producers I've ever worked with. Yeah. But they all have, like, one skill. Mm. You know, Scotty plays bass, Jeff plays guitar, and Bob is a great producer. But you seem to be able to do all of it. And I know you create albums on your own, and I know you, you don't give yourself enough credit for the, the productions that you put together. And I, I'm thankful for that because that's how we get together and get to work together. <laughs> but, I mean, there's been a couple that we've done from from scratch to completely finished projects. Yeah. So, I mean, we worked on Maddie McCree's album. That was yeah. an ar- artist you found in a, in a bar. And we went ahead and produced the record from start to finish. Yeah, that was a, a fun project. Yeah, no, I mean that's one of one of my favorite times. Mm. I just enjoyed the process as much as anything else. Mm. Why don't you look back on that for a minute and and tell me is there anything that stood out during that time for you? Um, I mean, I enjoyed the hell out of uh working with you in in, in more of a bigger setting as opposed to my my home studio, you know, uh yeah, I mean, it was it was great. Uh, great musicians, you know, um, coming from a jazz background. I'm kind of a stickler when it comes to <laughs> who I like to play with, you know. And not saying we were playing jazz at all, you know. Right. We were we were playing uh, with Maddie. It was rock, pretty straight ahead, you know. If you start doing stupid stuff, you know, I call it stupid stuff. You know, play a jazz chord in the middle of a rock song. It just sounds stupid, you know? So like, I've never been one to, to, to do that, but most of the musicians are just as capable of playing all types of music, you know, but they know what the, the gig is, you know, and they know what we, I'm doing the charts. We're doing the, this we're so it's, um, I think uh, for me, it, it was a lot of fun because I didn't have to turn knobs. I didn't have to worry about levels, you know, like if I'm in my own studio, you were taking care of that, you know. I, and I I could not go into a, an Omni or a, or whatever and, and be able to run a SSL board and freaking a million patch, but, you know, <laughs> there's just no way. I mean, well, that's, you know, the different specialties because, you know, yeah. like everybody else, I can't pick up a guitar and make it sing. So. We all have our, our specialties, but you were able to help him craft it and put the final touches on the pre-production. Yeah. Then we take it in the studio, but we're hiring other musicians to come in and, and play at that point. Yeah. And I know you can play drums. I know you can play bass guitar. I know you can play um, all these other instruments, but we still brought in some of the these guys. <laughs> not as good as some of these guys. You know, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I would never play a real drum session, like even in my own studio. So I, I can play elementary drums, I call it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I can play some stuff on the drum, but no, I, I, I wouldn't be able to, you know, how those, we'd hire those guys and, it, and it'd be like every every hit, it'd be right on the uh, right on the line of the, uh, explain, explain to your audience what that means on the, the click line. Click track. 
And we, yeah. you, you play to a click you track. Have a, you have a grid, you know, and it's like you could just visually see it was like on that grid is where the, right. you know, one, two, three, four goes. Kick drum and the snare drum fall it just right, like, right in line. They were just bang. You didn't have to synchronize anything or, you know, edit anything really. Well, a while back we had Andy Hull on the show, and he's session drummer in Nashville, but he played drums on that Maddie McCree record. Yeah. And he, he was just amazing. I, I love working with him. He's not only an amazing drummer, but he's just fun to be around, and it just made for a, a fun time in the studio. Yeah. And then we had Charlie Judge was on piano. Yeah. He's going to be on the show in a few weeks. Okay. He, he's another. He's a great piano player. Yeah. I mean, mm. But no, I enjoyed that time. I think what I enjoyed most is it was – the stuff that I work on, I'm a hired gun, and I go in and I, you know, either assist a producer, like you said, to press all the the buttons and run the equipment, or I get hired, if I'm lucky, to mix the song or mix the record and do some of the creative stuff. But I never get full control over what we're working on. Yeah. But I think this particular project, we were able to produce together and be creative and do whatever we wanted. Yeah. And I think that's why that project always stands out to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, Maddie was cool about um, kind of letting us do our thing. You know, that, that that's the thing, too. You know, like sometimes you get artists that get stubborn or they have, like, I think we knew in our meetings with him, we were able to identify what he, he was hearing in his head, you know, what he wanted to do. And then we just sort of, did it and, and, he, and he was happy about it you know there's there's other artists that um the worst artist to me is the artist that doesn't know what they want they just know it they just know it when they hear it that happens a lot in the songwriting you know industry and a lot of the meetings i've had with label people and produce uh, producers are usually a little better <laughs> but i mean i've heard that a gazillion times you know and i've toward the end of when I was pitching a lot of songs and stuff, I started pressing some of them. Well, I don't know. It sounds good. I don't know if it's a hit, you know, what's a hit. Well, you know, I, I, I don't know. I just know it when I hear it, you know, it's like the, the perfect right. cop out, you know, it's like, I just know it when I hear it. I can't tell you how to make it better. I can only tell well, you it's not you there. Can't give me no feedback. Right. Yeah. You, you know, it's, if you're kind of a, <sighs> If you're not someone who has a lot of confidence in what you're doing, whether it be a musician, songwriter, producer, anything, then you can let that get to you and be like, oh, geez, it's not good enough or oh, I'm not this or that. And But the bottom line is they don't know. Right. Like, like if someone plays a song to me and I don't think it sounds like a hit to me, I can say, well, you pretty much uh, lost me in the second verse because you got unfocused about where the story was going. Your hook didn't pay off right with the melody. I mean, I'm just, right, you know, just throwing out things. But I could sit there and critique it and say, "These are my opinion. My opinion. Take it or leave it. I don't care." But no, uh, uh, m most of the higher ups in music row, I would say, can't do that. Well, I think they're more business people. Th they are coming from a business mindset too. I mean, I can understand why they do things the way they do them. They've got yeah. these formulas that work. And when something falls outside of that formula, they might not be able to tell you why it's outside of the formula. They just know it's outside of the formula, and therefore, it's not a proven success for them. I think even within the formula, at least when I was sort of dealing with 
with Music Row. They there were so few slots at that point because you know they're trying to get rid of the outside writer, you know, and so there's there's so few slots that if it's not exactly perfectly exactly what they're looking for for their artist and whatnot, then as far you know, as the song goes. As far as the song goes, yeah. Yeah. And really the, the production, just as long as it's, I mean, most of the stuff they're getting are is high quality demos that pretty much sound like masters, half of them. Um, well, but a lot of them but, get turned into masters. Yeah. But, it, but it's not a prerequisite. If, if you've got a song that that's kind of just a standout something, you know, well, you're taking a demo to sell to an artist, so if that demo is of a good enough quality that you can provide an idea of what the finished song is going to sound like, yeah. then that's all that's necessary. But yeah. what happens in Nashville is people take that idea and they craft it so it sounds like a record. So they take yeah. all the interpretation out of it. So this is what it will sound like. I mean, that that has worked for a lot of for a lot of songwriters and maybe songwriter producers or songwriters that'll put money into hiring a, a great studio to that already has built in musicians and singers and whatnot to make it sound pretty much. I would say, you know, back in the day, those are the people getting the, you know, the most cuts and hits. Yeah, I can understand it. I mean, if, if you're the person that we're talking about, maybe one of the more business minded people on the row and you get two products in front of you, one's a guitar vocal and one's a finished product, obviously the less experienced person can listen to the finished product and say, wow, that sounds great. And they don't have the vision to kind of understand where that guitar vocal could go. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Um, I can understand those type of things. And then saying all that, I'll say that Barring the first few years I was here, pretty much everything I pitched, I, I you know, I just tried to make it sound like a freaking master, you know, because <laughs> it was like it's going to sound more professional to them. So in their ears, they're going to say, "Well, maybe this song isn't right for my artist, but obviously the guy knows what he's doing, so I'll take more pitches from him," you know. And that's how I built up my contact list and stuff. We had Billy Yates on the show a few weeks ago. And Billy's a a great artist, but he's also a songwriter. And here in the States, he had more success as a songwriter. He's written several songs for George Strait, Mm. George Jones, a ton of people. He's just had very, very good success as a writer. I know of him. But he ended up getting more success as an artist overseas. I mean, he toured Europe like crazy for years. And he had 18 number one hits over there. And he just did very well. And he was on Sony and he actually asked Sony to drop him because he thought he could do better on his own. When was this? This was in the nineties when doing something on your own at that time was unheard of. But his reason for doing it was not that Sony was doing a bad job and not that Sony couldn't handle it, but Sony had so many artists that they were dividing their time between say a roster of 10 artists. Mm. So he's only getting a 10th of their attention where if he did it himself, he gets a hundred percent of the attention. And for him, it paid off. I mean, he played overseas for years and 18 number one hits. That's a a pretty good success story in addition to his writing. That's a good career. Yeah. It's not bad at all. Well, let's take a a deeper dive into the the project you did with your wife. I know your wife as well. And Mm. we've produced some songs for her. 
Yeah. Just tell me how, how that all came about. Um, I met Rachel a long time ago. I was, um, I've had a production company in Nashville for quite a while and she was a client starting off, I think when she was like 19 or 20 and, um, she contacted me maybe a couple of years after the first kind of co-writing thing we did, which wasn't in person. It was, you know, her kind of through email and phone and things like that. And then she contacted me and said, you know, I'm a singer. Can I send a demo? Cause I want to try to do something more. So I said, sure, send it down. But anyway, uh, she sent a, a thing of her singing um, to a karaoke machine and just some cover songs. So I knew it was totally raw, no auto-tune, no nothing, you know, reverb, anything. Maybe some cheesy reverb on the karaoke machine. <laughs> but she was like nailed everything, you know. And then she also sent in a couple songs she wrote, just playing guitar probably in front of a tape deck or something. And um, so I invited her down and we started writing. And, you know, she's a very creative person. she got a great voice. And we ended up... Um, you know, writing a lot of stuff together and eventually pitching a lot of stuff. Um, we put together our, our album that was probably after we, uh, to bring you up to speed, you know, like, like when we first started working together, it was probably you know, three years or something until we started dating or something. So like it, there was like a friendship work relationship there first. And then, Pretty much uh, after we got married, uh, that that same week we got married, I started um, doing a mentorship with uh, Don Fremmer, who's had uh, about thirty hits, uh, about five number ones. He's just uh, you know gone of this world um, now, but um, he was uh, he was great for me is to really understand structure of lyrics and titles and things that move people, you know, catch you emotionally. You know, if you threw us just a really clever written ditty in front of him, he'd probably smack me in the face and be <laughs> like, you know, anybody can write that, you know, so write something that's like going to be song of the year, you know, but then she joined me about halfway through that. And we spent about a year with him. And after that, um, we wrote a bunch of stuff. We were pitching stuff. Um, we had uh, done a, um, a TV pilot with some older country stars, um, uh, Mel Tillis, uh, uh, Ray Stevens, who has a place in, uh, up here in Bellevue now. And, uh, and actually the, the, the concept of it was we were songwriters that were going to try to make, you know, so our, the end part of the pilot was us pitching to Buddy Cannon, who was Kenny Chesney's producer at the time. And, you know, so, uh, we had a chance to sit down with him and play him, you know, some songs. He, I mean, you know, he liked them all, but they're, you know, not right for Kenny, <laughs> which is cool. But that was part of the show, you know, it was supposed to be like the, the, the struggling songwriters, you know, coming in, trying to get a thing. Yeah. But they struck out the first time, but you know, come back next week. And right. <laughs> I think after that, uh, we had, um, we had talked to, cause they had heard our, music you know me and rachel's music and so some of these older people were like you know you guys ought to do something and i remember we had a meeting with uh, ray stevens manager so we sat down with his business manager who actually wrote one of his biggest hits and he was all for it he was like man you guys should you know really and we came close to having a deal with cracker barrel 
so, I mean, we were talking to their, their people and some of the people in their higher ups and, you know, it's just, uh, I don't know, nothing really. And, and then we had a deal with, um, a production deal with, uh, uh, Paul Worley. We were going to work together for a year and try to get us some cuts first and then try to push us out as a, as a duo husband and wife. And, um, and then all of a sudden, uh, Lady Annabellum won six Grammys and they dropped everybody. <laughs> they dropped absolutely everybody. And I don't blame them. I could surely understand why Paul Worley would just be like, I I'm not dealing with anyone else except them, you know, because they're the head artist now. All right, sir. Well, we. We've um, got this thing here we call Unsung Heroes, where we take a moment to shine the light on somebody who doesn't typically get the light shined on them, somebody who works behind the scenes, maybe, or a family member who may have supported you. Do you have anybody you'd like to shine a little light on? Um, I'll shine some light on my dad for, for buying me my first base for 50 bucks at the yard sale. There you go. Um, I'll shine some light on my mom, who is always kind of sang in the church choir, played some piano, and always wanted to have a piano, a real piano in the house, so we could be sing along a little bit. I'll shine my light on uh, Reggie Fisher, who was a, a mentor of mine. I'll shine some light on Don Firmer, who was a songwriter mentor of mine. And, of course, my wife and uh, five-year-old son, Cameron. You're, you're who? Your Your wife? <laughs> well, she's been there through a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, the tough stuff, you know. Of course she is, and she's awesome, awesome to put up with you, sir. Yeah, I don't know. She does it. <laughs> no. Now I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Jim is truly an amazing producer and a great friend. So please join me in giving him a big thanks for taking the time to share his stories with us tonight, and thank you for taking the time to hang with me here. I really do appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode please share it with a friend. You can do that and find the links to everything mentioned over at jfranzi.com slash episode 27. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Make sure you visit us at jfranzi.com. Follow, connect, and say hello. This episode has been brought to you by VR Knives, your source for 100% custom knives made by a true rock star. So if you're in the market for a new piece of art, reach out to VR Knives. 407-421-5528. 407-421-5528.